program to operate, the government would have had to invest lots of money, millions and millions of dollars in, in developing systems that would allow the carrier to send data to the NSA. You'd have to have that pipe there to make that work, which is to say, given that there was so much invested in trying to get this to work, and yet it still did not work, how would restarting this program suddenly yield no, it, a it, better it, result it, in the future? I, 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 I kind of I agree with you. Episode 305 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. This is a bonus episode. Uh, you're not dreaming. You actually did get another one of these two days ago. Uh, this is just a freestanding interview, uh, uh, but it will still be lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views expressed here will still be the views of the individuals concerned and not our institutions, our clients, our family members, our uh, children or our dogs. Uh, I'm interviewing uh, uh, Travis LeBon, uh, who is uh, here in the studio, uh, uh, which we'll continue to do until coronavirus set, shuts us down. He's a member of the, of the PCLOB, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Uh, I, I, uh, let me ask you, Travis, do you object to be co being called the PCLOB or have you just surrendered to it? I have surrendered to being called the PCLOB. Yeah. We are the only federal agency that is devoted 100% to privacy in the United States, but I wish there were a better acronym. Yeah, yeah, but you're stuck with that. <laughs> it, 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 everybody calls it that. Uh, uh, Stuart, I will, I will also add that when I was confirmed, uh, one of the board members, Ed Felton, sent me an email saying, welcome to the club. <laughs> well, that's nice. Yes, you're very clobbable. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so Travis uh, and his other board members have written a report on on the uh, call detail record uh, program, used to be the 215 program, uh, I, it is the program that caused all the fuss and led to the passage of the USA Freedom Act. Uh, uh, and they've written a report about the program, how it was implemented, uh, why it was shut down, what ought to be done with it. Uh, uh, so Travis, welcome. Uh, we'll be talking about the report. I'm Stuart Baker, uh, the uh, host uh, formerly with NSA, which is highly relevant to this discussion and DHS. Uh, uh, and uh, let's, why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, uh, maybe uh, you could give us, if you're willing, uh, I, I should say Travis uh, uh, has a history here. He was uh, uh, in the building uh, as a summer associate uh, on September 11 uh, uh, when the attacks came, could see the smoke, as, as could I, from the Pentagon. Uh, so uh, welcome back, I should say. Thank you very much. I'm honored to return to uh, Steptoe and honored to also have the opportunity to participate in your podcast today. I am an avid listener. I remember that when I was confirmed, you reached out to before I was confirmed, when I was nominated, um, you reached out to me very early and said, I hope you'll come to the podcast. Yes. I said I would, and I'm here, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you about uh, the recent report that we put out at the P-Club on the USA Freedom Act's Call Detail Record Program. By way of background, um, the U.S. government after September 11th had developed a program uh, that was subsequently exposed by Edward Snowden um, that collected uh, the call detail records in bulk 
of basically everybody basically in the United everybody States. Basically everybody in the United States. You, you said it. I, yeah. I, basically everyone in the United States. After its exposure, there was a lot of concern that was raised not only by privacy advocates, um, but by elected members of Congress, by foreign uh, officials as well. And the program was reformed. So uh, we should start with why they did that. It's, a, it's important to, to understand that. They had just seen a a plot that involves communications to a set of numbers in, you know, terrorist country uh, and known ter- terrorist numbers in some cases that NSA was watching, and then uh, the the plotters were in the United States and communicating inside the United States, and that was a scene that the U.S. intelligence community was very bad at protecting because it tried to divide the world into. Outside the United States, that's our problem. Inside the United States, that's the FBI's problem. Things that cross the border, I don't know. Somebody's got it, I'm sure. Uh, and so they tried to set up a program that said, if that's we have another plot like that, we need to be able to spot the call to the terrorist number outside the U.S. and then quickly find out who's in the plot by looking at the communications that they're having among themselves. And they, they could have done that with the 9-11 uh, uh, plotters if they had had this program in place. And so with that in mind, they said, well, how can we do that? And the idea was, let's get all of this data, drop it into a data lake, and then sip from the data lake with very small straws that are very carefully monitored. So although they collected all the data about everybody in the United States, they probably did a few hundred searches of that data starting with particular people and then building out to contexts that those people had and their contexts and, and beyond. So that's the – as I understood it was the – justification for the program, which does get lost in the Snowdenization of the discussion. It it often does. And I also think that you're right to point out that to understand a program, to understand a law in many instances, you have to understand the context in which that program was created. And in terms of the state of the world in 2001 when it came to communications – the primary way that many people communicated in real time across, you know, international um, uh, borders would have been using a telephone, yep. making a traditional phone call. And I think that's relevant as we analyze uh, the program you. today because the state of communications then and the state of communications now are totally different. In fact, I remember being right here in this building on September 11th when um, when uh, after the, the attack on the Pentagon, I tried to use my phone to just call my mother to let her know I was safe. And every single phone line was jammed. Yep. You could not get through at all. But I could send a text message. Yes. Right? The text message didn't immediately go through, but it kept pinging. It kept pinging. And and, and then the text message This is still through. true. If you're ever caught in a hurricane, uh, start texting. Uh, don't, uh, don't try to make a call. That's exactly right. And so the nature of communications was evolving then and has evolved even more since then. Okay, so Snowden blows this uh, uh, program up. The press is complicit in pretending there was no justification for it and uh, refusing to talk about the uh, um, limits that were imposed on the uh, program. Congress gets into it uh, and decides um, 
what? They decide to limit the program uh, in a law called the USA um, Freedom Act approximately five and a half years ago or so at this point. And what they did was limit the, you know, they made a few changes to the program. Number one, um, they uh, provided for judicial oversight um, of the program to limit the number of um, numbers that phone numbers that the uh, or selectors uh, that the uh, government could use to actually um, uh, go to a communications provider and ask them for the call detail records associated mm -hmm. with that selector. And then it limited them to essentially two hops. So rather than getting every single call, you could only get the original number and any numbers that it called and any numbers that they called. And that was it. So that limited the number. still. But it still yields a massive right. number of records. In 2018 alone, um, there were 14 FISA court orders. Um, four, but that generated 434 million call detail records, CDRs, and of which some of those may have been duplicates, but of which 19 million unique numbers were involved from, as I said, 14 reports, let alone now compare right, that to a program where you, you got everything. If, if, you're, if you suspect somebody of being a terrorist who um, calls for takeout every night, uh, the number of people who are going to be calling and called by the various takeout shops uh, is just staggering. So there was a lot of bump in uh, that. Uh, um, but because NSA could only look at data if they pulled it in, they were pulling all that in, whereas before they could say, oh, I'm, I'm not interested in, in phone calls like that, uh, uh, little um, – hubs of activity that are pretty clearly pizza shops. Uh, so it, it, in an odd way, it produced a lot more data being sent to NSA and actually looked at. Correct. It produced a lot of data, which NSA then had to analyze to determine what were the useful, you know, portions of the, the data. And in um, August of 2019, uh, the NSA concluded that the program should be suspended. Right. And in so doing – And you got – you. I think the P-Club probably generally agreed with that suspension. Yes. I think it's fair uh, to unanimously, say that – Unanimously, right? You, I think – yes. Unanimously in our report, we all conclude that um, the program was minimally uh, effective – um, uh, or you know, or maximally ineffective. Uh, some might have concluded that it was expensive. Um, that it's hundred million dollars. A hundred, a hundred million dollars over four years. Over four years, a um, hundred million dollars that generated um, fifteen intelligence reports mm -hmm. um, that cited uh, the USA Freedom Act CDRs, of which the FBI reported that only two had unique information, which is to say, the FBI already had other sources for that information. My memory was that there were a lot more valuable reports out of the program before it was reformed in the way Congress did, uh, that it was more on the order of 100 or more um, uh, reports that were generated, maybe even two or 300. Uh, do you remember the figures on that? I, I don't. You, you're talking about in the bulk collection program. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I don't recall the exact number of reports, but there were significantly more reports, as I recall, too, in the bulk collection program. Right. So this – 
$100 million, that's a lot, especially for 15 reports or two reports, depending on how you're counting. $50 million a report. Yeah, that's right. So I – and that wasn't the only problem with it though. But it had compliance problems. Uh, they, they had to throw out their database a couple of times or at least once. Uh, um, what was the source of the compliance programs? Were they – Actually, uh, did they have rogue employees or was there something else going on? There were a, a series of sources of the uh, compliance programs, and I have to be mindful here about what was declassified and right. what was not declassified. However, um, the primary one that the NSA cites to is that the communications providers, the telephone companies, design these records for their own business purposes. The CDRs that they collect are not collected for the purpose of turning them over to the government. And so there was – So they've got data attached. They've got notations in fields that are useful for the billers but not – and maybe even shouldn't go to the government. Is that the sort of th problem? That's exactly right. So, you know, under the USA Freedom Act, the U.S. government can – I mean the, you know, U.S. government – pursuant to this program, can collect call detail records. What are call detail records and what are they not? That's the important one. It does not include communications. It does not include the name, uh, the address, um, traditional more subscriber information. It does not include location information such as geolocation information. However, all of that information in many instances, not the not the actual content of the call, are collected by providers. And some and of so it they've is got it all in, in their records. And, and and if they're not careful, some it, of it is going to end up being sent to NSA as part of this program. That's exactly right because the as part of the program, uh, you know, the NSA collected about 50 different fields of data in each for each call. So we're not just talking about the phone number um, that was dialed. The phone how long dialed, they talked. Uh, uh, the duration. Whether they were roaming. That's right. There's a whole bunch of, you know, if there was a forwarding number, then that might be because sometimes they call voicemail. Then voicemail calls an actual another, another number. Um, if it's a prepaid calling card, then you might dial a 1-800 number. Then you enter another number. So there's a lot of data that one might collect in these. And it's easy for some of that to get jumbled into the records that are going over to the NSA. And so the NSA often you sort of struggle with this problem of, 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 of looking at the files, I'll say, that were sent over and then saying, whoa, there may be some data here that we weren't supposed to receive. And then they have to go through a purge process right. of getting rid of that data. Because they are such Boy Scouts about stuff like that's this. Exactly. So that, that's exactly. So that was one issue. Another issue actually was around training. Um, there were, you know, instances when analysts or uh, employees, I won't say that they were particular analysts, employees may have gained access um, properly. They were, you know, designated for this program, but they just hadn't gone through the training, the appropriate training. Okay. Before. Well, that sounds like bureaucracy. Yeah. Right? That, well, that's not but, bureaucracy. When you're dealing with a program that collects hundreds of millions of sensitive uh, records, uh, we want to make sure that the, in terms of compliance, that the individuals that have access to that are not only duly authorized to be uh, – to have access to that, but that are trained on the proper way to treat that. Yeah, data. OK. I mean, yes, yes, yes. But still, uh, in a big agency, there are always going to be problems. People are out when the 
training occurs because they their their car breaks down and then they get scheduled for the next one and they get brought into the program three days before their second scheduled uh, training. Stuff like that happens all the time. I, I, that does not sound to me like a compliance problem, but you can treat it as one. Uh, and it looks as though NSA, again, confessed to the, oh, we, we, we didn't do all the training we should have done. Uh, is there anything here that should make me worried as an American about what the intelligence agency is doing with this data? I am mindful that I have to balance um, what is classified right. versus what is declassified yes. okay. in responding to your question. Um, I am an American. And as an American, uh, I am concerned about a program that would collect all of my um, phone calls, potentially SMS text messages, um, when I have done nothing wrong, and that could then begin to analyze them. Okay, but now let me, you've changed the tone, the terms of, I was asking you, is there something that suggests they're actively abusing this program or even individual employees are misusing the data? And you're giving me Fourth Amendment philosophy. Well, I just don't think that's a good idea for the government to have that power. Did, did you actually see people delving into this data in a way that uh, suggested a motivation other than trying to find terrorists? No. Okay. Did, did not, I did not see um, evidence of that. Um, I, I am concerned because we are an oversight board and we have to make sure that you're complying not only with the law, but also that you've got in place best practices or good practices to ensure that people are trained. Otherwise, how do they know what the law right. is to actually comply with it? So, me, so I'm concerned when you have compliance. Service, and by the way, I'm not the only one. We could walk into a whole conversation right now about FISA, about the FBI and others yep. that are concerned about compliance issues. Um, compliance is, is serious. In, in, in that debate, at least the argument to the extent that there's an argument is that there was a direct and corrupt misuse of FISA uh, for partisan purposes uh, or the uh, FISA investigative uh, purpose. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the authorities were misused by the swamp, whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, and that's that's a, a much more serious concern uh, from a civil liberties point of view than uh, some people didn't get their training in time. I think that's the dominant partisan rhetoric that we would hear mm -hmm. in the political discourse. I think if one looks at you know the DOJ inspector general, if one looks at um, the court, if one looks, there's I think a he did, stepping he did, back. He, he away did not. From he did. He, he deliberately. Decided that he didn't have evidence of, of intent and so he looked instead at, again, errors. Uh, and then when you add up all the errors, you think, well, boy, it's hard to do that by uh, accident, but maybe they did. Uh, uh, so and this program was littered with errors, right? You had yes. errors with the providers. You had errors you know, within the agency. You had errors with what was reported to the court. You know, and representations that were made there you had. So there were errors that compounded upon each other and are not, you know, you know, 
when taken together, do start to raise serious concerns about the ability of the government to actually implement this program in a way that is consistent with balancing privacy and civil liberties and effective oversight of those who have access to the data. I I kind of agree with you, uh, and yet uh, uh, I don't. Uh, What I would say here is this program – was designed to fail. It was designed by idiots, uh, uh, people who knew nothing about how the intelligence process worked uh, uh, and whose beef was, you've got all my data. I don't want you to have my data. You tell me about all the ways you're protecting the data and not letting people sip from those straws. I don't want the lake on your property. I want the lake back with the the, the uh, carriers. And then you go to the carriers. And if you have to build a pipeline to get it out of them, that's fine. Uh, you've solved my problem that I don't want the government to have this data. And then they set up a set of rules uh, that they thought might work, and they just did not work. Uh, They wrecked the effectiveness of the program. If you look at the relative numbers before and after uh, this congressionally designed uh, uh, program uh, went into effect, Uh, they created a compliance trap for NSA, which had all of these requirements and that was getting data from people who didn't care about the requirements anywhere near as much as it did, and so who sent over data that put NSA out of compliance. Uh, uh, So I I guess I kind of completely agree with NSA's decision that it can't run the program because it was designed by people who didn't want the program to succeed. Well, I I will agree with you that – A, I will agree that the program was a failure. Um, I will also agree that uh, there were inherent structural issues to the program that caused it to fail as well. And but I would I would and I will also agree that there were good faring employees, or I will say there were good faring employees at the NSA that tried to design this program as best as possible to make it work. And I don't think that there was anyone at a carrier, you know, who was intentionally trying to send no, over they, you know they bad were, data exactly. to them. They, they, Their files they live were in a not different world. created for this. And for, for this program to operate, the government would have had to invest lots of money, millions and millions of dollars in, in developing systems that would allow the carrier to send data to the NSA. They didn't just show up and send a CD-ROM or, right. or send the files over in paper form. You'd have to have that pipe there to make that work, which is to say – Given that there was so much invested in trying to get this to work, and yet it still did not work, how would restarting this program suddenly yield no, it, it, a better it, result it, in the future? I, 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 I kind of I agree with you that uh, restarting this does not – and I'm now persuaded uh, and I was, didn't expect to be uh, – that restarting the program is improbable. And maintaining the ability to to restart it, which is the other idea that's uh, in the uh, uh, air, uh, which sounds like a why not, right? Why would you not have the ability to restart the program if you decided you needed it? But there are so many problems with it. It's kind of hard for me to think of circumstances when it we would want to restart it. So I sort of and, and I think that's where you are. That's exactly where I'm at. And, and I add on to the fact that between 2001 and 2020, as you know, 
uh, the nature of telecommunications are fundamentally different now. As you know, Stuart, right. I was at the Federal Communications Commission yes. beforehand as the chief of enforcement. So I've been immersed in this telecom world. We have m – many people have migrated away from making voice phone calls anyway and they just text. Uh, many people are now migrating to encrypted channels of communication. They have lots of platforms available to them to communicate. So if uh, we revive the program and we just asked for call uh, call details, we wouldn't get any of this over the top stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, and so the idea that we could find the network of people who are conspiring inside the United States with some terrorist center outside the United States is increasingly improbable because who wouldn't use Signal to carry out their uh, uh, terrorist planning today? And I certainly don't think that they would use a prepaid calling card right. or a wireline phone, which okay. are two of the three technologies that so, are the USA Freedom Act is designed. So as right. I read the, uh, the notation, at least two of the commissioners seem to say, you know, if we're going to solve this problem, we'd be better off building a program in which we could get access to all that data as opposed to trying to restore uh, a call detail uh, uh, record, which is a little like saying we want the rotary dial information. Uh, uh, you know, it's just it, – it's a vanishing part of the communications in infrastructure. You guys are not – as enthusiastic about the idea of trying to rebuild a program that actually would allow the government to quickly find uh, potential terrorist communications inside and outside the United States. Uh, um, but how do you solve that problem? We've got a we, we know it's happened and it was a devastating uh, thing when it happened. Uh, I, and the next attack that is planned from abroad and carried out inside the United States will probably feature the same kind of communications pattern. Uh, how are we going to find those people? I joined uh, one of the other board members, Ed Felton, in writing a statement that you know discussed this issue uh, in particular. Our view was that the um, kinds of issues that we uh, investigated in the CDR program were really inherent to the very nature of trying to take business records and convert them in mass numbers into intelligence records. And you, Stu, just actually went through a lot of the challenges mm -hmm. that are there with those. And I don't think that that's unique to phone companies. I suspect we would run into that problem again and again and again, even if you were to try to get to other forms of communication such that we'd have a lot of the same conversation about compliance, uh, et cetera. I, I, now, because they don't understand exactly how each company handles its, its communications. But let's stop for a second. The companies we're talking about, in many cases, they're Google, they're Facebook. Uh, uh, these are big companies with artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities, pattern recognition capabilities that are at least as good as the government's and a familiarity with who uses their system and how that the government doesn't have. Maybe the answer here is if you're going to start offloading your intelligence 
program to carriers, maybe we should be offloading some of the pattern recognition that we really want done to the companies that own the over-the-top systems uh, so that they can start looking for certain kinds of patterns. And when they find it, we might agree, yes, that is probable cause to believe these people are engaged in terrorist activity. There's at least one terrorist node on this network, and we can see the network uh, uh, coming out of the metadata that we as a company collect. Uh, It may be that that's the direction in which we ought to be moving if we want to catch this kind of plot. As you know, in many instances, um, uh, the communications that technology platforms have are end-to-end encrypted. Such yeah, that but they, these sure, but they forms are themselves. The metadata do, is still there. Do not have access to them. The, now, secondly, um, the, we have to be concerned that if the United States government can gain access or seeks access to these communications, there are governments all around the world that would love to do the same thing for their own purposes. And then, thirdly, but, but wait, let's, wait, 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 no, let's let's start start with uh, uh, the the second one. Uh, Governments do what governments want to do. They might be mildly encouraged if they're an ally of the United States by what the United States has done. But I don't think that uh, President Xi is taking a lot of lessons from us in how to uh, extract information about uh, his populace uh, uh, from uh, uh, call data. But that's uh, why Facebook's not there. No, Facebook is not, <laughs> Facebook is not <laughs> there. Facebook is not there because they, 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 she doesn't want them there. But he's learned how to do this. Uh, and uh, uh, the Russians, uh, where Facebook is, uh, although the contact is, is, is stronger. Uh, all right, take Turkey, right? You think Turkey's going to take lessons from us? Uh, uh, you think South is, Africa is going to take lessons from us? If the United States government starts to seek access to this, they will take lessons from us. The, 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 all of Europe has already imposed restrictions on uh, companies like Facebook and YouTube to find uh, and uh, take down what it describes as hate speech uh, in an hour. Uh, they didn't know how that was going to be done. They weren't drafting behind some U.S. government uh, uh, mandate. They just did it because they felt like doing it. Uh, The politics were there and they did it. Uh, So I, I, I... I understand there's a modest uh, uh, kind of path-breaking uh, uh, role the U.S. can play, but that it should not deter us from doing what we need to do to protect ourselves. Uh, and it, in the end, it isn't going to be much of a model for the rest of the, the world. So, okay. I, I and think the there's other, a different conversation let, let just, between stop. end-to-end encryption, yes, breaking end-to-end sure. encryption, and you know, seeking information that is not encrypted so, so are two totally different conversations I was, I was talking about the, about the second. I know. And I, I, and I wanted the, to bring you back to the first because one. Because the first one, <laughs> end, end-to-end encryption, yes, interferes with a wide variety of understanding what the intentions of the people are. But there is still a remarkable amount of information, as witnessed the fact that you know, the, the U.S. government did not, after 9-11, ask for access to the contents of these calls. They just wanted to see who was calling whom because that was enough to, des- to decide whether there was a conspiracy. And the same is true uh, with uh, uh, WhatsApp. You can determine that there's a conspiracy or, or a group, if you 
prefer it uh, pretty easily from the metadata. And that may be enough for you to say, okay, now I want to investigate these guys. Uh, now I want to know who they are. What's their account information? A, a bunch of information that carriers or, or over-the-top providers have. Uh, all of that is stuff that you could get from the companies and probably you would be better off asking them to do the initial processing than send the data and let NSA struggle with it. Yeah. We're straying afar from the PCLOB report. Yes. <laughs> I will, I will oh, this say. will be your next But report. I will leave the, the third point um, for you, which I think is also an important, which is um, the CDR program was only one program at the NSA. Right. As, as you know, it's not the only program that the NSA has available uh, to it and that the U.S. government has available to it as well. And I think we have to put this in some context that just because you had a, a poorly designed um, program around endangered or extinct technologies does mean does not mean that you go to the existing ones and try and upend the entire model. It's just a recognition that so, uh, we have a bad program, so let's 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 dispense with it and move on. So the argument I, I hear and I I, I I see some force in it uh, is we already can get the first hop right. If you, if we have a suspicious number, we can get everybody that number calls, uh, and no one has ever objected to that idea. Uh, well, if they if they screw up the reauthorization, they might be leaving some of that information out in the cold. But uh, uh, basically, the only thing we got out of the uh, called the tail record program was we got faster second hop analysis. Is that fair? You would have gotten faster second hop analysis. I think on your first premise, uh, if you have the first number, you really can only find out about calls in the United States. I don't want to say calls. Right. Everywhere in the world, you wouldn't necessarily have uh, e equal access um, to those. Um, I mean, you got to continue a program where you were able to get a substantial number of, 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 of first hop. But I agree with you that second was probably the primary um, benefit. That so it, it, rather than spend $100 million to do it to try to do it fast in by enduring all of these slings and arrows. Uh, uh, it might be more prudent for a practical investigator to say, "I'm just going to be faster about analyzing, about asking for the people I'm suspicious of, the call detail records of people I'm suspicious about, and then asking for information about all the." numbers they called that look to me like they aren't pizza shops. Uh, and, you know, yes, it's more work, it's more typing or at least more copying and pasting. Uh, but the notion that we could do it with computers faster, which was probably true with the original bulk data program, is, you know, hopelessly out of touch given all the complexities of trying to build the program uh, according to the um, – dictates of the idiots in Congress who <laughs> wrote the bill. Uh, all right. I, so, I, I, I do not believe there are idiots in Congress. I just want that to be known for the record. You don't think there are any idiots in None, Congress? Not one. Not one. Not one. Never met one. I think, I think, I think you, you're, you're, you'll you're be more credible if you said I, there are, but I'm not telling you, telling you and I've, I've never actually interacted with them. Uh, uh, but uh, OK, uh, fair enough. Actually, 
you, you can't be an idiot and get elected to Congress, but you can be an idiot about 95 percent of the things that you actually have an impact on after getting to Congress, uh, I would say. All right. Uh, what have we left out from the report? You had a – there was a, a flurry of argument over whether to analyze the constitutionality of the program. Uh, everybody agreed it was consistent with the statute. Uh, there was some – you guys, you and uh, Ed Felton wanted to say, oh, I'm not so sure this is really constitutional because Carpenter might mean more than it really says. Uh, and then everybody else, uh, the, the majority said, you know, let's not go there. Uh, it, uh, it looks constitutional enough for us. Um, that's pretty much what the PCOB had said the first time around as well. Um, anything else that's in the report that we ought to think about or do you really want to go back and um, uh, chew on the uh, uh, constitutionality bone? I, I do want to chew on the constitutionality bone because I think that as a prudential matter, it is important for the board to exercise discretion in determining when it is going to analyze a constitutional issue and when it should not. Um, in my view, um, we are not the Supreme Court of the United States. When we are evaluating a program that where the constitutionality was expressly considered by Congress, mm -hmm. where there is judicial, regular judicial oversight of the program, where every academic constitutional lawyer who wants to examine the basic contours of it from a constitutional perspective can, where the program is now defunct and does not exist, and where we as the PCLOP don't have unique um, access to information that is relevant to the constitutional question, then we ought to exercise a principle of oversight economy much like the principle of judicial economy and decide not to analyze the issue. Yeah. But if we are going to reach that issue, then I think it's important for us to be mindful of all the relevant precedent and not to choose one or two that we really like and hang our complete hat on it. In this case, the majority of the board decided to rely upon Smith a Supreme Court case from 40 years Smith against ago. Maryland, right? That's right. From 40 – about a pen register. The technology at issue in that case is fundamentally different from the kind of uh, surveillance that the NSA was doing in connection with the CDR program, right? A pin register, a primitive pin register allowed you to look at one phone number and to find out the numbers that it called and you were limited to two days, right? Here, we're dealing with a program that collected hundreds of millions of records for way more than two days and collected more than just the outgoing calls. It collected incoming and outgoing calls, and it collected 50 other fields of data there as well about the call. That is a fundamentally different program so, that begins to look a lot more like a carpenter 
than it does like a Smith. And so while I don't think that it's necessary for us to reach the constitutional question, if we were to begin to look at that constitutional question, then I think it's critical that we actually analyze a lot of the issues that are there. And it's not clear to me by any means that the Supreme Court today would conclude it's constitutional. Okay, so I, I you're wrong on the Constitution, but I, well, at least wrong in policy. You you might be right as a predictor of where the court will go. Uh, uh, the court is really badly advised when they leave the safety of the rule that says if you give the information away to somebody, you cannot complain when they give it to somebody else. That's just life. We learned that in the third grade when we told Susie who we really liked. Uh, and um, uh, uh, the, the, that is true. That's the heart of the third party doctrine. And what Carpenter did was to say, oh, well, you know, we don't always need to follow that rule. They will they will regret that for the next 15 years as case after case comes back to them saying, well, did, what about this exception to the third party doctrine? What about that exception to the third party doctrine? But you're right on whether the PCOB should have spent a lot of time on that. Uh, uh, I, I interviewed David Medine over the 214. The, the program from 2014, uh, the report that they wrote. And I think that was the part of the PCOB opinion that led me to say, so David, um, why did you write this? Is it just to show that you're smarter than every judge who has looked at this issue? Uh, and and uh, it is. It, there's, a, there's a fundamental kind of overweening arrogance to saying we'll pass judgment on this because you won't. Uh, I, in the end, it's probably more prudent to say, look, it could go – it could go either way, uh, and uh, but in our view, uh, it should not be abandoned because it's the, of views about its constitutionality, uh, which uh, turns out is where you are. Well, you know, Travis, I I have to say, you are the most effective. Uh, advocate for civil liberties positions to have appeared in 305 uh, <laughs> interviews because I have ended up agreeing with you over and over again, taking positions that uh, um, will have uh, uh, lefty libertarians cheering. Uh, uh, so uh, congratulations. It's great to have you, you back. Uh, uh, this has been Travis LeBond, uh member of the Privacy uh, and Civil Liberties Oversight Board and former Steptoe uh, Summer Associate. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining us. This has been episode 305 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. If you like having freestanding interviews as opposed to having them tied to their news roundup, uh, uh, then you need to vote because your side is losing. Uh, uh, go to steptoe.com slash podcast poll and vote for whether you want uh, the uh, uh, interviews to be separate from or part of the news roundups uh, in future. Uh, and as always, send us uh, comments uh, at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and if you suggest somebody who comes on the show, we'll send you one of the highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law podcast mugs, uh, which Travis right now is brandishing. Uh, uh, congratulations, Travis. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, please do get, leave, us, leave us a rating uh, uh, and uh, uh, comment on uh, uh, Travis's uh, brilliant 
co- combination of passion and clarity. Uh, uh, and uh, Travis, we'll have you back, I'm sure. Uh, uh, and please join us again uh, next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 